This is Kay Berklin. And this is Carolyn Morris. We have both worked with refugees from all over the world. So the news is just crazy these days and continues to get crazier. But what don't we hear on the news, specifically about the refugee crisis? We're here to interview people on the ground to know what's happening behind these headlines. Basically, we know some pretty amazing humans doing amazing things, and we know you will love them too. This podcast is for you. If you're looking for some clarity on the refugee crisis and you want to hear more stories about what God is doing all over the world. Welcome. Welcome to the first episode of Refugees, What You Don't Hear on the News. Yes, welcome in. So why are we doing this, Carolyn? What What's the point of a new podcast? So when COVID hit and the whole world shut down, I was currently living in Malaysia, working with Rohingya refugees, and Kay, you travel all over Europe. So suddenly, both of us were back in our hometowns, in our houses, and we thought, what could we do? A big part of what both of us do is to talk about refugees and to learn about refugees and to share what we're learning about how God is working. And this seemed like a perfect opportunity to do that, maybe even on a broader level, that more people can hear these stories. My favorite part of my job is to meet people that are, that to meet refugees, to meet people that work with refugees, to meet people that love refugees. And so this is one, this is hopefully going to be a great spot to do that, to be able to, as we said, introduce you to some amazing people who do amazing things. Help you travel around the world, even when you're in your living room. And another thing is it's podcast time right now. You know, we're all listening to, we're all guzzling through podcasts. So this seemed like a great medium to get to hear from different people. We will start out every episode with what we don't hear on the news. It's very difficult to find information about refugees, but we are hunting and looking through news feeds and trying to find some buried information about literally what is happening as we speak around the world with refugees. The problem is escalating. It is not going away. There are more and more people that are on the move and are becoming refugees. And so we're here to share that information. So that will be how we start. Yeah. And what's important to remember about that is that, yeah, we're not, it's, it's hard to find news on the refugee crisis, but when you do find it, it's usually um, the sob stories and the tragic part of what's happening. So hopefully this podcast is going to highlight stories of victory and encouragement that are happening. Because we all need a little hope right now. Yes. And so then each podcast will start off with something that's happening in the news. And then next we'll interview someone. And we think we have found some really, really interesting interviews. So um, get excited. And then lastly, we'll have some questions that are just fun at the end for our interviewees. Thanks for joining us as we kick off this first episode of Refugees, What You Don't Hear on the News. Well, we're here today with Philip and Joy Kirkland. They are two of my favorite people in the world, coming from Athens, Greece, and they have said that they would be our guinea pigs as our very, very first guest. I was going to say contestants, as our very first guests on the podcast. So thanks for coming. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Guinea pigs. 
You are so welcome. We're thrilled to have you there. Um, first question we have for you is what is it you see out your window? Mm-hmm. What's it look like where you are? Great question. Great question. A lot, a lot of cement apartment buildings, a lot of white, a lot of laundry. Yeah, a lot of balconies of yeah. lots and lots of neighbors. And the Aegean Sea. You can see the Aegean Sea yeah. from our the balcony of our apartment. How did you guys end up in Greece as a couple? Um, you know, we've always, we, we wanted to serve the Lord in some place where the Spirit was at work and where there were people who were, uh, you know, coming to Christ and coming from places where they hadn't heard the gospel before. And for us, that kind of turned our attention towards this part of the world. We've been married a few years and we're kind of exploring opportunities this direction. and. Uh, the international director for Europe just said, uh, you know, we've, we've got this contact with pastor in Athens and he would really love for a family to come and help them work with immigrants and in the city. And I think we just sensed that that was a door the Lord was opening right, right there for us. I'm part Greek, but didn't really have any connection with my Greek roots. Wow. That was kind of part of it a little bit, but yeah, the Lord just kind of kept opening doors and we kept moving forward in this direction. Yeah, and since then we've reconnected with all of Philip's, uh, well, a large part of Philip's Greek mm-hmm. family here yeah. in Athens, yeah. which has been interesting twist. Yeah, a neat part of what um, God's done. I think we were always really, we, we learned a lot and were really inspired from being in a very diverse intercultural community in Philadelphia. And we really wanted to take some of the things that we learned from that group about the power of the gospel working through different cultures we wanted to take that into overseas and use those experiences to serve a diverse you know city somewhere else so that turned out to be Greece yeah Philip how did these relatives respond the ones that you didn't really know you had and once you found them and they (laughs) found you what was that what was that reunion like well the story of how we got connected is kind of long and meandering but we met them all the Greek families for the first time on our first visit to Greece in 2009 at a Greek wedding of all places. One of my grandpa's cousins was marrying off his daughter and they said, oh, perfect, you gotta come to the wedding, you can meet everybody. And we showed up and there was just so much crying, so much like Kissing. cheek pinching and back slapping. <laughs> I did uh, that we, Greek wedding. Know, <laughs> it was, we, we did 100%. Greek dancing till three in the morning at the wedding. You met every relative all at once. Yeah, it was super intense, full on. Yeah, very intense, but very fun. How did they feel uh, for you as an American then coming back to your roots? Well, you know, it's just like coming home. I was talking to a taxi driver today and she says, oh, you know, of course they want to know like why I'm here. And I said, well, I'm part, I said my great grandfather is from Greece. He left Greece 110 years ago. (laughs) And so, you know, it's kind of a long shot. by American standards. And she says, oh, well, okay, well, you're Greek. Of course you came back. And of course you're Greek. I said, well, it is ways back. Just, it doesn't matter. Wherever you're Makes from. Makes sense. Yeah, you're Greek. You're Greek. It's just strong. The blood is strong. So you feel connected with that now? Yeah, I, I do. I, every time uh, I, you know, I just feel a special connection to this place. That's true. So, so when you came, how long ago was that again? And then you have children. How old were they when you came and how old are they now? So we have three kids. 
Uh, Nora is 17, Everly is 14, and Abraham's 11. But when we came, they had just turned three, six, and nine. So that was in 2012. Yeah, yeah. And so how did they go to school and such? Well, we, you know, took a chance um, and with a lot, of, a lot of prayer, threw them into Greek public school. So that's what we really just wanted them to be bilingual, to have Greek friends, to feel like they belonged here. And that was something really important to us. And uh, Greek Christians here don't have the option of sending their kids to a, Christ a Christian school or homeschooling. Um, so we really wanted to be a part of that experience and face that struggle as well ourselves and be a part of the community in that way and supporting each other as we try to raise our kids in a, you know, uh, in a Christian environment. So we put them into public school and they all went to public school until high school. So now the two girls are in an international school in high school and Abraham is still in Greek public school. And all totally fluent in Greek. They are. They're all bilingual. Oh. Abraham learned to read and write in Greek first and then in English. So that was an adventure for him, too. One of my favorite memories of Abraham is watching him in the Greek national costume on one of the holidays doing the Greek dance. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he's such a good dancer. He really is. He's very intense. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, our next question, we want to know, like, what does a typical day look like? We know you both are involved in different ministries, and then your your lives obviously intersect in lots of places, but... Well, it's a great question. We uh, we stay really busy, that's for sure. I'm church planting here. I'm leading a church plant, and so that takes, that's, in some ways, that might be what you expect, and that I'm, like, preparing sermons for each Sunday, although I'm writing them in English and then translating them into Greek, preaching in a second language takes a little more energy. So I spent a good amount of time doing that, working with my Greek tutor on kind of getting that ready for each week. Um, I lead a few different teams of people in the church and, and with uh, missions of the world. And so I'm kind of working with people on my team, helping them with the tasks that they need to be working on, and uh, checking in with them. That takes some time throughout the week. And recently been training Bible study leaders and launching new small groups in the church. So a lot of, at this phase in the church, a lot of creativity, like a lot of, a lot of need to, especially with COVID, a lot of need to problem solve. So I probably, I spend quite a good percentage of my time dealing with the new regulations each week for the church, uh, trying to just keep everybody moving forward. And, and that's, that's a big challenge for anyone who's leading, I think, in these times. You mentioned a church plant. For someone who might be listening who doesn't know what that is, what, what does a church plant mean? You know, it's a, it's a new church. So we've started a new church. Um, uh, we just felt like there was, you know, a place in the, in the city where there needed to be a church, a place where people could gather. And actually, we had just built a network of people who really wanted to grow in their faith and who um, are really enjoying spending time together and and so we just meeting together on Sundays and forming ourselves uh, into a church, kind of built it from the ground up and from the small group level and then up, up into, you know, a group that meets, meets together weekly and celebrates, you know, the Lord on Sundays together. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's, an, it's a multicultural church. So we've got people from all over. It's quite an interesting, uh, interesting experience. We really enjoy that. The people from all over, we've probably got 
probably 15, 15 different countries rep represented in yeah, the country. We sing music from all over the world. Every Sunday we might sing in five or six different languages any given Sunday um, all together. Uh, you know, we pray in different languages. We have a call to worship in multiple languages. The bulletin has, you know, different scripts in it and Farsi and Arabic and focus on inclusiveness. I bet you have some good meal times too. Oh yeah. You do. Yeah, lots of good food, <laughs> that's for sure. What nationalities? Can you name some of them? Sure. Um, we have a couple of Palestinians. We have some uh, folks from Iran and Afghanistan, Romania, Denmark, Czech Republic, Cuba. Moldova. Moldova. Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. um, Greece. England. Ireland, Portugal, um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Ethiopia. How did this network form? Is this through an area of town you live in or your work? Like, how did those people come together? You know, it is, it is a diverse neighborhood, but to be honest, most of those people live in some of the surrounding neighborhoods around it. Okay. Downtown Athens is pretty poor, but the edges of the city are, are not as much. Um, so, yeah, these are people that we met. I, I, I really maintain that God actually just builds his church like this. I think you have to be intentional to try to build a church that's made up of just one type of person. Mm. Uh, because God's actually calling people from all over to himself. So we're just kind of embracing that in terms of bringing those people in. And so anyone we meet you know, has come to Christ and looking for a church, you know, we invite them in. And to be honest, once you get a, a core group of that, they just invite people they know from their sphere, uh, and it just starts to move because people people dream of being part of a community where every where you know people are welcome um, and where they can you know connect and be a part of things. So I think it's yeah, it's really kind of caught hold just because it's what a lot of people look for. Yeah, yeah. certainly. For sure. So, Joy, what about you? Yeah, my days look a little bit different. I, I am trained as a, as a trauma counselor and trained in psychotherapy and social work. So I get to here in Athens be the psychosocial lead at an NGO that was started by some of the local churches here. And I get to work as the psychosocial lead, so supervising a lot of supervision with our psychologists and social workers that work with refugee youth. So. Um, we have a couple units in the NGO. One is a shelter for unaccompanied refugee minors. So we have 22 refugee boys living with us right now, which in a time of COVID is um, exciting and challenging and also sometimes frustrating. <laughs> and we also have an educational center for refugee girls and boys. And uh, we're just about to start a drop-in center where we do street work to find homeless youth, refugee youth. So I do that and I have some other just doors God's open for me here in the city working, doing one-on-one -on -one counseling um, to support some of the local churches, including our church plant. I also get to once a week do group therapy with women who are recovering from human trafficking experiences and seasons in prostitution. So get to work with some of those women alongside in a in a work recovery program that they're in. So when you guys moved there many years ago, would you have ever anticipated this is what you'd be doing? Is this what you had in mind? No, I don't think so. I don't think I would have envisioned it quite like that. 
<laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I think for me, I was mostly thinking about working with women, which I love and I'm still doing, but I never sort of conceived of the refugee crisis in the form that it took here in Athens and what that would mean for sort of the trauma landscape here. And so having studied trauma and just having a heart for that and wanting to learn more and going in that direction, I had no idea that that was going to become such an important issue in in the city that I was living in. And I certainly never thought I'd be working with teenage boys, <laughs> but it, it turns out that trauma has a lot, you know, these traumatic experiences have a lot in common uh, with each other. And the gospel speaks to trauma in a lot of ways that are very true and very consistent and very beautiful. So that's, yeah, that's been a neat surprise along the way. Yeah. Could you speak to that a little bit more, maybe um, about the difference in working with those boys and, and some of your women? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of similar threads that have to do with belonging, what it's like to lose your community and your connection to people. And I think trauma has this a part of trauma is just the way that it impacts our identity to the point that it really renames someone. So like Ali and Muhammad, they become refugee. Like that's, they're renamed by that experience. They have this traumatic experience and it's almost like it re-stamps them with this identity that's not fully human. And it's the same for women in prostitution. You know, they have names, they have things that they're good at. They have relationships they have this experience and suddenly they're prostitute and that's who they are that's what people see and that's what people say and I think for me the thing I love about sort of gospel-centered trauma therapy is to watch that identity be restored and that person sees that they're loved that they're created in God's image that they have all of these imprints of him and his glory all over their you know all over them (laughs) Um, in different forms. And so that's something that's really common across trauma stories. Um, Just to back up a little bit, can you give a very short synopsis, if you can, of Athens' involvement in the last five years in the refugee crisis? I think for for you personally, for you as a church, and um, also for the country, this was not anything anyone was anticipating and, and then what the reverberations were across your country. Yeah, hard, hard to believe that was five years ago uh, when that started anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's always been refugees coming in because it's kind of a gateway to Europe. You know, there's a lot of borders, like water borders that are easy to get across and people have been smuggling across. But yeah, in 2015, the borders was up and wide open. We had a million refugees coming through from Syria and we started from Syria and then everybody just piled in and um, many were on the way to Germany, but just this constant flow every day, there'd be two, 3000 new refugees just getting dropped off in the port coming in from the islands and just uh, living in all the parks in the city, uh, you know, downtown, especially, and just, just overwhelming the system for sure. I mean, the Greek system, the Greeks were also that same summer experiencing their own like financial meltdown. Um, and that was a, big challenge for them economically. And so they were they weren't in any position to offer a, you know, a lot of economic uh, opportunity to, to the refugees. Um, so that, that that was a yeah that was a hard summer like a long and it really took took a whole year of that flow to, before it started to slow down. And that really changed Greece because you know the system became immediately full 
camps popped up everywhere. Islands became holding, you know, cells, holding pens for thousands of refugees. Um, and even as a church, we had to, you know, as a denomination, as a collection of churches in Athens, I think Greece, I think it, in that sense, it was a, I think the Lord was at work there to kind of wake us up and just remind everyone that you know, he's at work all around us and, and that people come to Christ from all over and from all backgrounds and what, you know, what we were comfortable with in our churches, you know, what, what seemed normal and easy, you know, needed to flex a little bit so that we could welcome the new people that God was calling to himself in our midst. So that, I think that's one of the things that has kind of stayed with us. That's definitely, we've definitely seen that ripple through our church and the church plan for sure. One of the neatest things for me was to be able to see the Greek Evangelical Church, who's your partner there in the city, is to see how they initially respond and then responded and then over the next five years, how they've been able to adapt to the changes. How would you be able to talk about that? Like, what have you seen about the changes from the initial arriving of the refugees to where you are now? I think that 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 is one of the things that I really carry with me from the refugee crisis was just the beauty of just a very small and extremely marginalized group of believers in, you know, a vastly like orthodox kind of context coming together and just having a really significant impact on a global phenomenon just by trying to be obedient to Christ and love their neighbor and cook things in their own kitchens and drive around and find solutions for hurting people. And I think just that willingness, I I was so touched by that, but a small group of believers with limited resources, what God can do through them. And so that has been really inspiring all the way. And it, it just started with small acts of faith and sacrifice and to see it have grown into some really beautiful ministries and nonprofits and kind of arms of the church that are having a still still having a significant impact today has just been a real privilege for us to watch and be a part of in small ways. So your ministry has been evolving over these years and now obviously with the pandemic it has evolved even more. So tell us about how it's changed in the last couple months. Well, we were we actually preparing to launch the church and have regular morning services uh, this spring. And uh, that turned out to be uh, not the best idea. And we went into a lockdown. I think it was a great idea. But anyway, we went into lockdown. We couldn't do it. And, you know, we just had small groups and Bible studies online. And we just went virtual. Here in Greece, it was a really strict lockdown. Like, no one was allowed to leave their houses without sending, like, a text message to the government, um, you know, letting them know where you were going. Um, that went on, that was about six or seven weeks. Um, and so, yeah, there was no, there was no meeting for anything. Um, but, and the, the church community just really came together and found just so much strength, um, through that, even online. And so we decided when we came out of lockdown, that why don't we just launch now, even though it was summer and it was, you know, which in Europe is a really down time to start a church. And, and people on the team actually were like, you know what, I think we can do it. And, and um, what are we waiting for? Yeah, just, so <laughs> in July, we launched the church. Like we, we had been meeting once a month in the evenings, but we had not really had, we had never had a morning service. And we just uh, started meeting Sunday morning every week in July. And 
you know, thankfully we've been able to keep that up. This Sunday will be the first Sunday that we won't be able to meet for because of COVID regulations. I think we're only we're only allowed nine people uh, to meet together, and we've grown well past that. So we're going back online, but I think it's been a good good time for us to just kind of build yeah build community and fellowship. You know, with, without any of the things that you think you need for a church, without you know a building or you know any anything special, it really was grassroots. It just was people meeting together and praying together and reading the Bible together. It was on Zoom, but it was a really a building time for us. I think one of the really sweet things with the church that's come out of COVID is we were in a building that was under was being renovated, so it was under construction, and the construction was paused and kind of delayed due to COVID related circumstances. And so when we came back out and decided to start meeting, we were like, we're just going to meet in this space anyway. And everybody was like, yes, we're just going to do it anyway. No No light, (laughs) no air conditioning in July and August. And to just see people have joy and want to be together. They didn't care that they had to wear masks. They didn't care that it was 90 degrees. They didn't care that there was no light. Mm. Um, There was just like a very holy kind of joy that we get to be together and we get to worship for this time and let's just enjoy it and to the fullest and you know love each other as well as we possibly can because we might go back into lockdown and not get to do it so that was a really really exciting thing that happened in the life of the church and there was a lot of energy and love in it. So how did that affect some um, opportunities that you had as a church to minister to people during COVID? Well, I think COVID on top of the refugee experience, it just, for new refugees, it just really increased their vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And then for refugees that were just starting to make some progress in their asylum case, in stabilizing, in, in finding housing, it just immediately knocked that out from under them. So yeah, I think anybody who was already vulnerable experienced a whole new wave of Mm. vulnerability and hardship due to COVID. And that has been really difficult to watch. Just to clarify, unaccompanied youth, what do you mean by that? So that's, that's refugee kids, like kids under 18 that end up separated from their families. And that can happen for a lot of different reasons. Here in Greece, we, we have, um, a lot of unaccompanied refugee minors. So, and that's who we house at, at the shelter that we have that was started by the church that our church, our plant is a church plant of. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a big need we have here. And there's lots of reasons why kids get separated from their parents. Sometimes they get sent with friends of the family or family members who decide not to take them the next step. Sometimes there's not enough money for the whole family to go. So they leave some family behind and Um, This is something that's happening all over Europe. And these kids are at huge risk for all kinds of Mm -hmm. exploitation, but also for radicalization and and other types of harm. So they're really very unprotected and they don't understand Europe. They struggle to integrate and to find safe and healthy things to do with their time Mm -hmm. and their talents. So yeah, it's a big need all over Europe. Some of these kids are as young as I think I've heard eight and up to about 18. And then how many would you say are in, in Greece? In all of Greece? I haven't, I haven't seen the latest statistics. Um, so I'm afraid to quote numbers. But yeah, they can range anywhere from, um, I've met ones as young as uh, 9 and 10. Yeah, all the way up to 18. Uh, we have in our shelter right now, 
boys between the ages of 11 and 18. So yeah, that's very, that's very common. And I think in any European country uh, where the system is struggling to provide um, for the number of, of cases, mm-hmm. it's a big issue. Yeah, and it all the more underscores the need for a safe place where the children can be loved and cared for, but also that they can um, have their even their basic needs taken care of. Yeah, absolutely. And Joy, would you mind giving us a, a little more of a peek into the shelter? What's their life like there? Mm. Their life in the shelter, I'm really thankful. The team that works there, everybody from the caregivers to the social workers, the psychologists, it's just a beautiful group of people. And I feel like the quality of life that they're providing um, for these boys in this period of time in this city is really extraordinary. So uh, we have the the program, uh, the educational program. So the boys from the shelter participate in that as well as um, refugee youth just from the com- community. So that's open to the whole population. But the boys, they have um, educators that come and do tutoring with them and help them. They have access to social workers and a lawyer and they can meet with a psychologist and they can get enrolled in school and all kinds of different academic programs. They can get involved in the community in different ways. They can volunteer places. They can interact with other kids. The program, I think, is, is just really well, well designed. And the quality of what we're able to offer because of the people that are there and that are really giving their hearts, I think the quality is really high. Could you share a story maybe without, you know, giving personal information, give a story of one of the boys? I can tell you a little bit about some of the things that they go through. So um, we've had a lot of boys that have, have lived in Camp Moria. Some of, you know, that's kind of famous in, in the refugee story around the world for being, you know, a terrible place to be um, because of the humanitarian conditions and things like that. So we have quite a few boys that have lived in Moria for periods of time and then came to Athens and been homeless. Um, we have a lot of unaccompanied refugee uh, boys in Athens are being ex- exploited for sex. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a common story for a lot of them is sexual exploitation and abuse either along the way, on their journey, or once they arrived in Greece. Um, And that's a big risk to the homelessness, too, is just trying to find ways to survive, trying to find ways to make a little money, to send it home. We have a lot of boys who feel deep family obligations. They want to help their families who are stuck in poverty or in difficult situations. And they have this conception that they're going to get to Europe and they're going to get an amazing job and make lots of money. And then they're going to be able to pull their families out of poverty or out of debt or out of difficult situations. So a lot of them have these kind of huge uh, emotional and psychological burdens. Like I'm here, I have to make it because the whole family's counting on me. That's something that um, a lot of is true in a lot of their stories. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they get here and they don't speak the language They may have even like literacy issues and things like that that prevent them from kind of moving forward. They find out there's no jobs really here, uh, even for Greeks, let alone, you know, for refugee boys. And so that's kind of like a dream shattered. There can be a lot of hopelessness, a lot of frustration and anger. Those are things that are very common in a lot of the stories of the boys we interact with. How has COVID affected the home? Have they had a lot of cases in the home? We have. We have had one case. Um, and thankfully, we, 
you know, by God's grace, we were able just to do a lot of, take a lot of measures to isolate and protect the other boys and clean well and eat in shift and, you know, distance and do all these kind of things. And um, we got through that. And right now we have no sickness at all in a shelter. It's a huge praise. We've had a lot of ups and downs, a lot of like crisis moments of like, oh, are we going to have an outbreak? But thankfully we have a great team working together and we've been able to implement a lot of things that I think have helped us keep things stable and keep the boys health as healthy as possible during this time. So we just pray that continues. I have another question about how you've been able to be creative during the COVID crisis. What's something you've had mm-hmm. to do that's kind of stretched your creative juices, something you didn't ever have to do before? We did start a creative collective in the church, mm-hmm. which is just anyone who is creative. And we have been sharing during the lockdown um, worship music. We've been writing our own songs. We've been writing our own poems and sharing them. We have a group, like a chat group, where we post things and share things. Um, we've actually sang things for each other, like songs from our childhood or from our faith journey, and then video recorded ourselves singing them and then posted them to each other during the lockdown. Um, and then we were able to get together when we came out of lockdown. We just did what was really fun, spent a day together and just shared, everyone shared just poetry and music and spent the day together. And at the end, we recorded the doxology in six languages, I think, which was really, really fun. So we've had some creative projects like that as a group that have been really inspiring. And And something like that may not have come out. It may not have come together if you didn't have this opportunity, we'll call it. Yeah, very true. So bringing it back to refugees, we one of the questions that we keep thinking about is, what is something that is happening in the refugee crisis that maybe the common person wouldn't just hear on the news, mm-hmm. that maybe someone on the ground would know that uh, other people wouldn't? I think one thing that I see um, is that... Uh, when we think about what refugees need and we think about the refugee crisis, we usually think in terms of um, they need documentation, right? They need housing, they need medical care, these kinds of things. And what we hear from refugees so often, what I hear from my friends um, who've had that experience of being a refugee um, is that so many people um, starting over like that are looking for friendship, are looking for community, Sometimes that's their biggest felt loss is losing their connection to other people, their connection to their own language, the ability to communicate freely and be themselves. And um, they're feeling the impact of that. Uh, And that is sometimes more traumatic for people, you know, even if I'm working with them in a therapeutic setting, than than, uh, some of the other experiences that they've had that we would think of being at the top of the list like war and, you know, experiencing war and um, extreme poverty and being displaced and all those kinds of things. So just, I think that COVID has created more isolation for people who were already feeling deeply isolated and lonely. And COVID has just made it even harder for them to connect, harder for them to start building supportive networks and relationships in ways that would allow them to stabilize and integrate. And so I think that that's something that doesn't make the news, but is really, really affecting people, uh, displaced people all over and definitely here in Athens. Yeah, and I would add that 
you know, one of the challenges that they face, and you, you kind of mentioned this earlier, John, is just, just the fact that all their cases are stuck. So mm-hmm. all, there's no, you know, they, they kind of pitch it as like, well, you get an extension on your asylum case because the offices are closed. But that just means six more months, a year of no answers and no, and you don't have permission to work, or maybe you don't get any access to medical care for another year now. So you're just waiting. You can't get a job, but you can't you can't survive without working. Um, and so and that, that's happening all the time. Is everything's just shutting down now? Maybe open for a little while, and you think you got an appointment, and then they'll close it all down. So this creates all this uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it locks them down. That that that's a really stressful place for them to, to have mm-hmm. to live. And that's got to be hard because you yourselves are stressed out with very deep needs. How would you? encourage um encourage those of us who aren't there in seeing all right there are some amazing things happen happening and um and god is at work and how would you see that um you know i I have been amazed to see how many people whose stories i didn't really have any part of have just come into our city in some way having found christ on their journey you know the 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 spirit the holy spirit is just in is just in the middle of this whole thing touching people and connecting people to the gospel in really unique ways and everyone's story is something different all around europe are churches like people are just showing up in our churches who have found jesus along the way people who never would have heard the name of Christ probably in their home countries, have just discovered him and have this young but strong faith and this, you know, need to learn more about who Jesus is. That's been a marvel. So in terms of like strategy for how, like how do we go out and connect with all these refugees and, you know, how can we tell, tell them about Jesus? And it's really been about how can we um, create spaces to welcome all of these people that are coming in who want to be part of our churches? And I think that's been a really positive move because it's, uh, like I said, I think it's just kind of pushed us to to think about who we are as a church. What is the church? And uh, what are we as the body of Christ? And what does it look like for us to just, you know, exist as the people that God calls us to be, including all the people, you know, that God is calling to be a part of of his body that's been amazing to watch and to be a part of yeah it's been so encouraging to see people who have come to christ because they watch stuff on the internet or they were on facebook and somebody told them about jesus or they watched youtube video or they found you know a new testament in a puddle at a refugee camp or so many just story after story and it wasn't because there was this grand strategy and we all did such a great job of reaching them for Christ. It was because God has a strategy and all this and he's bringing people to himself in such, um, in such a dynamic and loving way like he does. And uh, I think our lives and the lives of the believers here have been hugely impacted by, um, by learning to identify with our brothers and sisters who understand what it's like to be a pilgrim and a sojourner. And um, those are deeply relevant experiences for us as believers. They're part of our collective identity as God's people. And so when you have those people and they come into your local body and they come into you know, fellowship with you, you suddenly start to learn all of these new things about 
the gospel, about what it means to be a Christian, about thing, aspects of God that you never really thought about before because they're not normal in your cultural context to think about. So that's just been a huge blessing. That's like something I see God doing is enriching us and changing us and um, challenging, you know, us and what we're comfortable with. Um, yeah, for his glory. He's blessing the church through refugees. Yeah, I think our lives have all been enriched by the people we know who have unfortunately had to go through the refugee crisis and just what we have learned and and the friendships that we've made and uh, how we've seen God at work. So we have a surprise question. Um, and the surprise question is simply, I don't know if you have your phones near you, but you just take out your phones and we'd love yes. for you to tell us the last picture that you took on your camera roll. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> and <laughs> tell us about it. Oh, <laughs> uh, this is fun. You want me to go first? Yeah, you okay. go <laughs> My last uh, picture is of a chart of um, the brain waves that fire. Uh, it's like a neurofeedback chart that that's showing like what your brain waves do when they're in a state of arousal. And it's it's a it's a trauma therapy thing. I took a, a picture of it in a book that I was reading this afternoon. But it's all like delta waves and theta, all these waves. Um, of your brain and what it's doing when you're stressed. Joy, how many people have that. pictures of that on their phone? <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot. Yeah, it makes me feel a little bit weird. But now we know what um, you do in your spare time. Now you know. Now we know. But the picture right before that is actually a video of Philip and Abraham, our 11-year-old, um, doing a YouTube exercise workout video together. And it's really cute. <laughs> I wish I could show you that. Much more <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Right. Unfortunately, you can't see it. Mine is you know, a little less academic, but you know, still of interest, I guess. It's a picture of our church office. Um, so we just moved offices today, and I wanted everybody to see the space that we were going to have a chance to meet in and have our Bible studies in. And so I took a nice picture and um, sent it off to our teams and our Bible study leaders so they can kind of know what that space is going to look like and how they can use it uh, to be together and you know, read God's word and fellowship. Our next question is, um, what's a podcast that you've been listening to recently that you would maybe recommend? Mm -hmm. I, I, I... <laughs> Go ahead. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, um, all right. I, I uh, a couple weeks ago, stumbled across one I've really been enjoying called Praise Hands. Praise Hands? Um, and it is a podcast. Praise hands, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's about cross cultural Christianity. Um, so they just interview people who are involved in cross cultural, you know, church work, ministry work, you know, life in general. They um, have multicultural music, um, music um, leaders on there. And the last one I listened to, and really encouraging. Lots of good ideas there. Okay. Well, maybe they'll interview you next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Um, I, for me, Unlocking Us, Brene Brown's podcast, um, yeah, I, I really enjoy some of her things and I find them, find them really relevant to the field that I'm in. So, um, yeah, yeah, I just enjoy listening to her for fun. That's great. 
we'll put um, the podcast um, as well as your contact information at the end at the show notes. So both of those things will be listed. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for your time. It is as always a joy to be with you. And if we can't be with you in person, at least we can do this. And um, I know that there are so many lives that are blessed because you guys are there. Um, and we just see the love of Jesus shining out in you guys and through you guys. And um, it's been really fun to talk. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing this with a, hopefully a lot of other people. And so thanks for being our first, very, very, very first guest. Mm -hmm. And uh, we appreciate it. What an honor. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jay. This was lovely. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who made this podcast happen. Shout out to our editor, Robbie, to Jim's Beat for Music, and to all of you for listening. Check out our show notes and catch you next time.